Good morning. Praise the Lord for rain. Amen. I hope you were praying for that because that was, that was amazing. About five o'clock this morning, it got windy and it started to rain. I was thrilled to, to hear that coming through. Thank you, Arlen, for the songs. Oh, listen to our wondrous story. Um, I remember that song. I'm not sure when we would have sung it, but it kind of was familiar to me. But that last verse, it talks something about um, coming under his scepter. And a little bit the theme of what the message is this morning. The title of the message this morning is Jesus and the Upside Down Kingdom. But before I begin, let's pray. Father, thank you for the rain you gave us this morning. Thank you for answering our prayers. Lord, we desire more rain. Pray for those places that are still very dry and are in need of it. But Lord, this morning we come even with greater need and expectation. Lord, we ask you to uh, water our parched hearts with the truth and with um, just that balm that you give us through the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that as we worship you, that your name might be lifted up and praised. And Lord, as we look into the word, uh, might you... Just reveal your truth to us. Thank you again for your presence here. We pray for those who could not be here, those who may be traveling, and uh, we just ask your blessing on them as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The last time I preached, um, I called it a vision beyond ourselves, and it kind of ended a little bit out of Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus says, ye are the light of the world. And so I kind of jumped past the Beatitudes a little bit and just reflecting on um, what's our role as the church? And Jesus has put us here as, as the light of the world. So as bright as we shine, that is the measure by which God's light is seen to others. And so how dim or how bright is your light? It's kind of where we left it last time. And this morning I would like to um, begin more in, in the first part of the chapter, in Matthew chapter 5. And possibly... Um, I'd like to get into Beatitudes, but I'm not even sure if I'll, I'll get much done in that this morning because I feel like there needs to be a little bit of background here. This uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, very familiar to all of us. There's also a similar passage in Luke chapter 6. And I, as I looked at that one up, I, that one's called the Sermon on the Plain. Kind of, I think it's two settings. Here, Jesus goes into the mount, and there it seems to be in a different place, and yet there's, there's parallels to the things Jesus taught. So I don't know necessarily that the Luke account is the same um, setting, and yet it wouldn't have been unusual for a teacher or a rabbi to preach the same things multiple times. So if you think about an itinerant preacher... Back in the old days in the United States, the circuit-riding preacher, you know, he would go from one town to the next, and I'm sure he preached the same sermon again and again, but it was to a new audience. And so possibly what you see in Luke is some of the same truths, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily at the same, the same setting. So it's interesting, as you study the Sermon on the Mount and you, you read some of the parallel passages, the wording's a little different, and maybe it's even just a different perspective of another writer. But there is certainly overlap in both accounts. <clears throat> The Upside-Down Kingdom, that's not maybe an unfamiliar term to you. There's actually a book by that title, The Upside-Down Kingdom by Donald Crabill, I believe it is. Some of you have probably read that. You've also maybe heard of the title of the book, The Kingdom That Turned the World Upside-Down. Uh, David Berceau has written that one. Very interesting books. And so when we talk about the Upside-Down Kingdom, is it really Upside-Down? 
You see, Jesus comes and he starts to teach in ways that um, are somewhat astonishing to those who hear him. Because it goes so much against the flow of, of culture, it goes against the flow of what is known at that time. But, but which way is up? Which way is up? Is Jesus, was Jesus introducing something that was completely new? Or was he, was he bringing something that all along was God's vision and intent for humanity, but it hadn't been understood at this point? In, about, uh, in the late 90s, about 1997, I read a story about a, f a female Air Force pilot. She was flying an A-10, and if probably you guys know different plane names, and we see those actually flying overhead quite frequently where we live. And uh, she was doing a practice, a training run. This was out in the, in the desert, Nevada. And she was actually doing a, a bombing run. And she, it was a moonless night, and she was doing this, this training mission. And she dropped these bombs, and then she did her maneuvers to get out of the area. Well, she became disoriented. And she actually began flying upside down. And it, uh, the, the plane, her instrument panel, alerted her that she was in a dive. Well, normally if you're flying a plane and you're in a dive, you pull back, right? You've got you to gotta pull the nose up. Well, instead, she, she pulled back and she dove straight into the ground at about 400 miles an hour. Was killed instantly. I believe she was the first um, female Air Force pilot to die in an airplane. Upside down disoriented, thinking that this is how it is, and then in her reaction, of course, uh, a disaster happened. But, but think about how we view life and the, and the Christian life. But I want to, this morning, I want to try to give us a context for the listeners of the day. And you have to understand that as we're coming out of, out of the Old Testament into the New, there's a number of centuries of um, kind of the silent, the silent years, where not, not, no prophetic word is given and things are as they are, and, and you understand kind of what the uh, religious establishment was at that time. And so here comes Jesus, and he starts to, to teach and preach. Well, actually, John the Baptist comes first. And his message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, to those who heard that, I'm sure they wondered, kingdom of heaven? What, what is this kingdom of heaven all about? Uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7 in Matthew, it says that the listeners... Were, um, they were astonished at his doctrine. And it says he spoke as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus, while he's teaching something that seems to be revolutionary, it came, he came with authority. But again, I ask you the question, were the things that Jesus was teaching, were they revolutionary because they were so new and so different? Or were they seemingly upside down because... It didn't match what was being taught at that day or what was understood about how God was moving in the world. In Matthew chapter 6, further on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives all of us the instruction. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, I want to point out, Matthew is the only gospel that uses the term the kingdom of heaven. Um, that would be an interesting study. I didn't spend a lot of time on that. But for some reason, Matthew, I, I think it may have something to do with his audience, being a Jewish audience. Uh, that The kingdom of heaven is used in Matthew about 32 times. And he only uses the term kingdom of God five times. And one of the times that he uses kingdom of God is when he says, Seek ye first 
the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So the logical question we would have is, if we are to seek first the kingdom of God, we get that straight from Jesus. I think all of us would say, yeah, we believe that. Well, what is that? What does that mean to seek first the kingdom of God? How is the kingdom of God a present day reality? And when you think about the kingdom of God, or when he says the kingdom of heaven, um, the word heaven, there again, I didn't, I didn't dig deeply into this, but I, I think it has the idea of, of the air. The kingdom of, of the air. And then he says it's at hand. So it's, and then he, other times he says it's among you. It's not just some distant reality, but it literally is here. And Jesus, and when, when Jesus preaches the same message as John the Baptist saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, is it a new kingdom? Well, what is a kingdom? Let's first of all define that. So, definition of a kingdom. Help me out here. <clears throat> Give me about three or four things that make up a kingdom. When we talk about a kingdom, what are some of the, some of the key components of a kingdom? Just blurt it out. People or subjects, right? King. A king or a queen, depending on the monarchy there. What else? Land or territory. Territory or dominion. And about one more thing that's fairly key. Usually law. Laws. All right. There's law and order, right? So you have the, you have the monarch, you have the dominion, you have the subjects, those who are part of the kingdom. And then you have its laws, or the things that, uh, that produce order. So that's, a, that's maybe a generic definition of kingdom. So then in what way is the kingdom of heaven present? How is that a, a current reality? <clears throat> so Jesus and John preach the same thing. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but the truth is that other kingdoms still remain. Not all kingdoms have been banished as of yet. And I, as I was studying for this, I was drawn back to the book of Daniel and it is it's fascinating and I don't know why God chose to reveal things to Daniel or to Nebuchadnezzar but he did and this is centuries before Jesus comes on the scene and if you remember uh, Nebuch King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream one night and it's a very troubling dream and he wakes up and not only is he troubled by the dream but he can't remember it he forgets exactly what it was he just knows it was bad and so he calls all his wise men and says, hey, tell me my dream and tell me what it means. And of course, no one can. Finally, it ends up, Daniel finds out about this. And he comes on the scene, and after much prayer, he comes before the king, and then he relates to the king his dream. He, he tells him what he saw. He said, you saw this great image in your dream, and, at, at, and it was just a mighty statue, and at the top was a head of gold. And then he said there was chests and arms were of silver, belly and thighs were of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then he says, while you were watching this image, he says, there was a stone cut out without hands, cut out of a mountain. And the stone came and it struck the image in the feet where there was iron and clay and, and the feet shattered and were broken. And then it says, and the entire thing, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, they were all completely crushed. And this image just crushes and falls into dust. And then it says the wind comes and it blows it all away. But the stone that struck the image remains. And it says it, it grows and it grows and it becomes a big mountain that fills the entire earth. And so Daniel relays this to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure, is like, yeah, I remember that. I saw that. It was so real in my dream. Well, then he goes on to explain the vision, explain the dream. 
And he, he lays out, he says, you are the head of gold. You are, you are, God has put you in this position. You are above all kingdoms. And then after you will come another kingdom. And then he, he describes every layer of the statue. And then he gets to the end of that whole thing. And at the end of the vision, in verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2, he's talking about, after you get down to the feet of clay and this mixed kingdom, he says, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So the reality of this kingdom, it's an eternal kingdom. It will never end. It will begin. But there will be a time in which it will coexist with other kingdoms. Someday they will all be consumed or destroyed. But there is a time where these kingdoms will, will coexist. And that's the time we are still in today. And so as, as Jesus and as John the Baptist describe the kingdom of heaven coming, he says it's here. But other kingdoms are still, are still um, at play here. <clears throat> so... As Daniel describes it in the vision, as he talks about it, he also, Daniel also has another vision later on in Daniel chapter 7. And this is a bit more specific to who it is, who this kingdom is, uh, who the leader of this kingdom is. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, this is what Daniel himself, remember the first vision was Nebuchadnezzar's and Daniel's just relaying it back. And now Daniel has his own vision. And he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The word in this passage here I'd like to zero in on a little bit. Again, we get the idea that it's an everlasting kingdom, but he calls it a dominion. And when you look up the word dominion as used here, the idea is of an empire. So someday, the Son of Man, Jesus, will come. He will build an empire, as it were. An empire is, is huge. So in the time of Daniel, Babylon was, that was the, the empire of the day. How, how many nations were, were kind of subsumed in that? But, so this idea of dominion for the Son of Man is an empire. He will rule all. So as we think about kingdom, we know what a kingdom is. And so now let's think about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Jesus, of course, is king. And so where does his kingdom, if it's among us, but other kingdoms remain, where is his kingdom? If we want to be part of it or know where it's at, where is it? And here's how I want to define it. God's kingdom, it's the range of God's effective will where what he wants done is done. You understand that? It's where God's will is done. You hear it in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus prays, um, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So in heaven, his will is done. God's will is completely done. On earth, not fully. It is done somewhat, but the Jesus' prayer was, make so that your kingdom comes and that your will is done here. So, Jesus' kingdom is wherever his rule and reign are happening. All right? So what areas on this earth is it still not happening? Well, it ha it's not happening fully in the human heart. That's one place where God still does not demand. There still is choice. As long as there's life, 
uh, people can choose whether to accept the kingdom or reject it. So one place where the kingdom of God either is or is not is in the human heart. God also gives leeway to the nations, um, our politics, our, our social, our, our nation. I don't know how you want to describe that, but if you look at the politics of our country, uh, they're pretty chaotic. There's not a whole lot of reflection of the kingdom of heaven in the politics of our country, which is probably true of almost every nation in the world. So there are those domains where, where, the, where God's will is maybe not being done, and God still gives freedom for that to be so. But then he's inviting us into this. So I want you to understand the context that this is not just some detached reality. The kingdom of heaven is not simply the place we go when we die. It, it surely is that as well. But Jesus teaches it as a more present reality. And that's why when, you, when these people are hearing it, they are astonished at what happens in the kingdom. Because it's upside down. It doesn't make sense. And we'll get into some of those details as we go on. So who is in the kingdom? It's those who are obeying the principles and who are, by choice, choosing to be within the kingdom of God. Now that's God's dominion. That's his kingdom. But God has also given us a measure of dominion as well. Now think about back to at the beginning, before corruption. What are Adam and Eve given? First of all, they are given, um, they are the only ones created in the image of God. That was who they are in creation. But right after the creation, God talks about it in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and he says, let's make man in our image. So there you have man being in God's image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God did it. He says, let's do it. And then he says, he did it. So God did. He created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful, multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moved upon the face of the earth. Okay, again, dominion. So you remember in Daniel, when it talks about his dominion in the kingdom of heaven, that was an empire. This dominion is slightly different. Man is also given dominion, but here the word means to, to subjugate or to put under. So we do not have our own empire. We will fall under his empire, but we also are we're still given a role. We are given dominion. And and so I want to describe what, what does that mean to us as well? How, in what way? And again, this was pre-fall, but I think it carries through. Now, of course, the corruption and the fall frustrates all this in a lot of ways. That's why Jesus' coming is turning it back to right. It's not, it's not a new idea, but it's actually Jesus bringing back to right what was lost from the beginning. So we are also called to have dominion and to rule as well. So if we want to call it a kingdom... What, what is our range of, of uh, maybe you could say, control or, or influence as eternal beings? Because remember, we're created in the image of God. So God, we're the only creature that is like him in that way. So again, our kingdom as humans, as eternal spiritual beings in the image of God, is simply the range of our effective will. Okay, that's how I define God's kingdom. Whatever God wills to be done, wherever his will is, that's his kingdom. So our our portion of that, our dominion, is what do we have control over in our lives? And think about where humanity has gone with that, with, with it being corrupted. So we are called to have dominion, but how does that get abused? On one hand, you have 
people desire to rule, and so you have, you know, you have people who seek power, they seek to oppress others. Like, take, take the two extremes. On one hand, you have, you know, those who are in slavery versus those who rule, right? And so mankind is always, there's always kind of this, this battle to, if you're on this side of slavery, slavery you're pushing against, like, I want, I want my dominion back. And those who are uh, in power, they seek to take it from others. So that's where it got corrupted in, in so many ways and, and, and abused. But for us as humans, we still all have, we still have a free will, that range of whatever. That might be your choices. That might be your thoughts. Um, but whatever things are specifically in your control is what God has, has entrusted you with. That's, that's in a sense, what, where you rule. But we were never intended to do this on our own. Even when God gives the mandate in Genesis, it was not intended that man would go off and be his own God. He was always intended to have dominion in partnership with God. When you saw Adam and Eve at the beginning, that, that relationship they had with God, yes, they were given a role on the earth, but it was never meant to be for their own purposes. It was always meant to be in connection, in union with God. So Jesus coming now, he's, he's bringing things, he's offering a way to get things back to right. So in a sense, the rule of God has always been, since the beginning of time, God has always ruled. But when Jesus comes, he now opens a way for us to, again, uh, be in partnership with God in this kingdom. And maybe this all seems very out there to you, I don't know. But I think it's important if, when we talk about, as we go into the Sermon on the Mount, is to, to help us try to understand... What was confusing people about this? And maybe what was, what was so different about this? Like I said before, there are still places where the rule of God is still not carried out today. His will is still not done. And, and I said one of the areas that we as humans have in control of is, is our own hearts, right? Does he have dominion here? That's a choice that we allow, we allow him to have dominion. Uh, many of you have probably you've maybe heard of... Uh, Teresa of, of Avila. Uh, I can't even tell you what, what era she lived in, but one thing she wrote about, she was talking about uh, the way God wants to, he wants to own us in one sense, but he wants more and more of us. Okay, so she talks about it as being, um, calling it the interior castle of the human soul. So one of the things that you see about Jesus in his interactions with people is Anyone who calls out for help, he answers. He even says how little faith it takes. It, it takes so little faith even to move a mountain. But those who came with a faltering faith, Jesus always accepted. He always accepted them at, at where they were at. But even though we may come with a faltering faith, we begin a life. A life in the kingdom is a life of God continually taking more and more of our territory. Okay? So think of that idea. This Teresa, she calls it the, the interior... Uh, how did I say it? The interior castle of the human soul it has many rooms. Think of a castle with dozens of rooms. And Jesus, we allow him to come in. We say, yes, at, sal at the moment of the new birth and salvation, Jesus comes in. He comes in the front door, and there he is in the, in the foyer and maybe the living room, and he has entrance. But then Jesus, it becomes a lifelong journey. When we talk about discipleship, it's that lifelong journey of Jesus coming further and further in to that interior castle, and he wants, he wants this room, and then he wants this room. And so um, his, his will being done on earth, it also has to be happening in our own hearts, first of all. 
So maybe one of the limitations that God has on this earth where his will is being done, maybe it's, maybe it's a limitation we place on him in our own hearts. That's why we're continually having to yield ourselves to him and allow him to have more and more access into our own hearts. So as, the, as every part of us, every part of our own soul is occupied by God, it gives us time and room to grow. Growth is a lifelong process. So we're all, we're all in need of growth. That's why we, that's why we do discipleship and, and, and talk about growth, is giving him more and more place in us. That way, um, we become useful vessels in his kingdom. So in that reality, you have the kingdom of God and you have our own, our own, uh, maybe our own, uh, the places that we have dominion as well. So as Christians, we're living in, in that place. Someone called it, we live every moment in the interface between our lives and God's kingdom among us. And there again, maybe that feels so distant to you that well, God's kingdom, it's just this, it's out there somewhere. But it's happening. It's among us. And so how are we able to have the spiritual eyes to see really what God is doing in the world. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus gives an offer here. It's an offer that all of us can receive. He talks about, really, this is the two, the two different kingdoms at war. One of them has, is described as a thief. You have one who wants to come, he wants to steal, he wants to kill and destroy. That's the enemy. He still has a kingdom to this point, but he's the enemy. Jesus says, this is what Jesus offers. He says, I am come that they might have life and they, that they might have it more abundantly. I don't want you to raise your hand this morning, but I want you to think a little bit to yourself. Would you describe your current life in Christ as abundant living? Jesus says that you can have life and that you can have it abundantly. That's the offer for all of us. What would keep us from that if that's not your experience this morning? And you say, well, that's not what Christianity feels like to me. It's not what my own experience feels like to me. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like abundance. And think about like this whole story of Jesus and the kingdom and all that. You could probably talk to most people that are your neighbors, and they, could, they would know who Jesus is. Some of them may have heard of the kingdom idea, maybe not. But most people, whether professing or non-professing Christians, have an idea of Jesus. And most professing Christians, of course, would acknowledge who Jesus is. But the realities of the kingdom just don't seem to be evident, or not, are not apparent in their lives. Or there seems to be no connection between abundant living and what's actually happening. Are we missing something? And maybe, I'm not saying this necessarily just for us, but maybe in general Christianity has had a large focus on, on salvation, personal salvation as being the main point of Christianity. If only we get people, just get them in the front door. Get them saved, and that's, that's now the point. And yet, while it is very necessary, I don't take away from that, because John the Baptist said, repent. Jesus said, repent. Clearly, entrance into the kingdom is only possible for those who are willing to turn away from their sin and exercise faith in Christ. That's, that's clearly the beginning. But it's only the beginning. 
Salvation is entrance into a new life. It's entrance into a new life in Christ. And if we don't get past that, I feel like maybe our lives can be, our Christian life can be one of frustration. Abundant living, what does that even mean? He gives us the Holy Spirit, but for what? Is that for, to just control sin? Someone has called it, there's many gospels, uh, the gospels of sin management, where salvation is simply about dealing with the sin issues in our lives, and you know that's a lifelong process until we, we die and go to heaven. But Jesus is inviting us into a work that he's doing in the world, but we have to have eyes that can see it. We have to have eyes and the difference, I think, in, in being able to see it is understanding that this kingdom take, it, it's an eternal reality. The difference between the kingdom of this, of this world and the kingdom of God is when we're living for the kingdom of this world, it is all about the here and now. It is all about what do I need in life? What, do I, what am I chasing after in life? But in the kingdom of God, suddenly everything takes on eternal significance. And suddenly my eyes realize that there's a, there's a whole different life to be lived. And what's amazing is that, and maybe this is what confused people so much uh, as, they heard, as they heard the Sermon on the Mount was, they had these ideas of what religious and, and what, what God valued. And then Jesus says small things like giving a cup of cold water to a child. He says, that person's not going to lose their reward. Well, how can that, how can that be so significant? Except that suddenly even the mundane and everyday acts and the things that we do, when we're part of his kingdom, they take on eternal value. If they're done in his name, of course. If they're done for his sake. And so can we start to get eyes to see that our Christian life, it is an, even now we live in an, in an eternal perspective and in an eternal reality. Now we're not done yet. We don't just park the car and wait till, you know, wait till Jesus comes. We have a work to do, but we do our work in the reality that what we're doing now already matters for eternity. That's why the Sermon on the Mount can make sense. That's why being poor in spirit, that's why mourning can actually not be the end of the world or not be so tragic that we're crushed forever, but that everything that we start to, to live in now, that reality is it's part of God's eternal kingdom. And he wants us to be part of that, and he invites us into it, but it also comes at a cost. Last summer, Melanie and I took a 20th anniversary trip to southern Utah, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And we drove through Nevada, through Utah, and the one day we decided to go see the Grand Canyon, which was about three and a half hours from where we were staying. So where we were at in Utah, one of the things that's so beautiful there is there's varied elevations, there's different plateaus, and just it's just beautiful. And so where we were staying, we, we started heading off we wanted to get to go head south for Arizona, but before we, before we headed south, we had to go east for a bit too. And so we were driving along and then we made this steep climb and finally we were on top of a plateau and we drove on this plateau for a long time. And you get so involved, I mean, it's so vast there, you kind of just get involved in the scenery and whatever and you kind of forget where you are. And, and after a while, we kind of came off the plateau down into a plain, a flat area. And then we turned south, which was gonna take us straight to the Grand Canyon, straight south to Arizona. And so we drove and we drove and we drove and it was just vast. It was just scrubland, desert, and just kind of nothing except big rangeland. And we drove and drove until all of a sudden, again, the land began to rise. And as we went up this rise, the terrain began to change. And all of a sudden you started to see pine trees. And as we got up, we, all of a sudden we came across this little rest area or an overlook. And so we said, well, should we pull off? Sure, let's pull off. So we pulled our car off to the side and, and parked there. And, and right beside our vehicle, I saw, we saw a little dirt trail going off. And 
let's go, let's go check this out. So we get out of our car and we start to walk down this dirt trail and pretty soon we came to, it was, I would say a valley, not super deep and clearly a forest fire had been through there. So there's a lot of these spindly trees. And so we stood there a few moments and we looked at this valley and, and I thought, well, this is, you know, this is something. I mean, it's, it's not really what I see at home, but not super impressive, but you know. And so we, as we looked over, we thought, well, okay, let's, let's hit the road again. So we come back and we get to the car and almost are getting in the car. And I think she saw it first. She looked over, she says, hey, there's some steps over there. And then we looked and sure up the top of the steps is an actual lookout. Oh, okay. So we weren't even at the right place. So we start walking through the parking lot and we go up these steps and we get to this pavilion. And as we stepped into the pavilion and looked out, there was an amazing view. Those miles that we had driven across open desert and now we were on a high elevation and we looked back over those miles and way past, we were seeing hundreds of square miles, but way past this long road we had driven, you could see a plateau. And in this plateau, there were multiple layers of rock. There was white, there was orange, there was, and it was just this expanse of, it's called the Grand Staircase. Maybe some of you have seen it. And I was, it, we were so blown away. And in, in my mind, I thought, I almost missed the whole thing. And here I am, I'm off, I'm off looking at some scrubby trees in a little tiny valley that has a forest fire, and I think this is it. And when I get out and I actually see the reality, I see that this is amazing. And the, the, the view was worth just standing there and taking it in for a while. And I was so glad we didn't, we didn't miss it. And we went on to see the Grand Canyon, which was just yet another amazing thing. But I thought of that as I think about getting eyes for the kingdom. And sometimes it's just part of our human nature, I think. Sometimes we, we're so caught up in just what is. Life and the, and, and the hardships and all the things that we're doing. And maybe even our vision for what the kingdom is and for who God is and how big he is and the things he's doing and the things he's inviting us into. It's kind of like standing there and seeing the little scrubby trees and thinking this is it. You know, this is kind of what it's all about. And he's inviting us into so much more. He wants us to be part of this and he's inviting us into this. That's the context. And it's already time to close. I didn't even get to the Beatitudes. That's the context I think Jesus is introducing a kingdom, and he says it's among you. It's already happening. He's inviting us into it. And as, as you see, I think the uh, Sermon on the Mount was given to m not just the multitudes. I think this was those who were actually seeking and following. There were times that he spoke to the multitudes. There were times that he interacted. But now those who are still curious and are still listening... He now introduces this to them. I'm just going to briefly, I want to read the, the Beatitudes, and I want to bring this to a close uh, because of the time. This is the first number of verses in Matthew chapter 5. It says, Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. 
I think many times we maybe tend to read this passage and see it in terms of, if I do this, I will be blessed. Blessed are those who do this. And as I read through some of those, maybe our understanding of poor in spirit, I don't know that I fully capture all this. I think today we view poor in spirit probably in a more positive light. We look at it as, as humility. But think about those who come and think of their, their reality, all right? Their idea of kingdom is tyranny on top. And for those who are poor, for those who are destitute, what hope is there in life? And as Jesus comes and he starts to talk about a kingdom, he's talking to people who he's offering this to. And he says, you know what? You that are poor in spirit, you that are nothing, you that find no place of value here, if you're part of my kingdom, you're blessed. Even in that state, you are blessed. I find it hard to, especially the second one, blessed are they that mourn. I would find it hard for us to say, that's why I think I'm trying to interpret this as correctly as possible. Are we blessed when we mourn? Is there a blessing in weeping and sorrow? Like, should we be sad all the time? Uh, many of you have experienced tremendous difficulties. Some of you have had hardships, whether it's financial or you've, you're going through a cancer or you've lost a, a mother or father. We lost a child. Am I blessed because we mourn? Is that the blessing that, well, as long as you're mourning, you're blessed? Because are, not, are, there, are there not many who are mourning and never find blessing? And when he says poor in spirit, if you go into Luke, he leaves that spirit part off. He says, blessed are the poor. Is it a blessing to just be poor? Is that what Jesus calls us to? Be poor and then you're blessed? I think that misses it. I think what he's calling us is when you find your sufficiency in Jesus. See, when you become part of his kingdom and you say, remember that whole kingdom idea. He, he becomes, he's Lord of that kingdom. And when I, when I come into that, of course, I come in in faith, but then it also requires obedience. But in, in, in effect, I think what Jesus is saying is, when you willingly are part of my kingdom, then you who are poor, you might think your outlook in life is terrible. But you know what? You're blessed. Those of you that mourn and have had terrible things happen in your life, maybe it's abuse, maybe it's death, maybe it's loss, whatever it is. But if you're in my kingdom and you're living in my kingdom, you are blessed. Why? Because you're going through it? No, because he takes those things and he redeems them. He takes those things and he makes something out of them. That's one of the, it's one of the greatest joys um, even my wife and I and our family had in, in the death of, of Savannah was because we know we live in an eternal reality, this isn't, this isn't the end. That doesn't have the last word. There's hope. So are you blessed when you mourn? You are if you're in the kingdom. Are you blessed just because you mourn? Not necessarily. Are you blessed just because you're poor? And so think about Jesus offering this to people who in their own minds, they were, the, they were the dregs of society. They were the outcasts. And so I think his audience was those who were, they were people that were hungry for something like this because now the kingdom of God, even though it, it seemed upside down, it actually was right side up. It actually was accomplishing what God wanted for his humanity from the beginning of time. All people had value. All people were invited to the feast. Everyone could come. 
and when Jesus had interactions with people, you know, it just, the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler comes in, and he leaves away empty-handed because the riches got in his way. Well, in that day, riches were viewed as God's material blessing. Surely if you're rich, you are blessed, and yet Jesus, he kind of flips that around. He says, you can also be blessed if you're poor. Now, also, the rich were also invited into the kingdom. That didn't keep them out, but it could keep them out, and so... It's not, so it's, it, Jesus, in a sense, flips the categories for what they thought in that, in that time. And so as we look back on it, we can, we can come to some understanding. Um, one last story before we close, and this is also out of the Gospels here. And that is the story of, of the Good Samaritan. Another story that just flips the categories for those who are hearing the kingdom message. We call the story the Good Samaritan. To those people... Good Samaritan is an oxymoron. There's nothing like that. There is no good Samaritan. A Samaritan is someone to be hated. And so I don't know what context, we, how we would say the story today. Um, if you were in Israel, you'd probably say the story of the good Palestinian or, or whatever. whatever. Whatever makes you kind of revolt inside, that's the good guy in the story. Well, so you, you know how the story goes. You know, a man gets beaten on the road to Jericho. He's left for dead. And here come, in our context, here comes a minister and the minister comes by, he's busy, he's got to go preach that Sunday. And his, in his value system, the, the question at the beginning of the story was, who is my neighbor? Remember the question? That was from someone who's poking at Jesus. Who's my neighbor? Well, the minister comes by and, and the priest, and he sees the guy laying there. And Well, clearly, the spiritual work he is about to do is more important than this. So that man does not qualify as a neighbor. And then, you know, the deacon comes by, or the Levite, and he, he does the same thing, and he sees, I don't have time, I have, I've got spiritual work to do, and he moves on. Well, then the Samaritan comes, and what's different of the Samaritan, of course, is compassion. He has pity, and you know the story, what all he does to care for this man. And Jesus comes to the end of that whole story, which, for the listener, probably had their blood kind of boiling, because the Samaritan is never the, never the hero in their stories. But... Is the Samaritan the hero because he's a Samaritan? No. Jesus used that, I think, to, to knock at their prejudice a little bit. But he came, and he came with compassion. And then Jesus flips the question to them. Remember, the question was, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, who was a neighbor? Who was a neighbor? Not who is my neighbor. Who was the neighbor? Who was the one who was having compassion and who was having pity? And for those... And in, in the scribes and Pharisees who, maybe in their legalistic way of thinking, well, they could say certain people are my neighbors and, you know, those who fit the caste system of the day. These are my neighbors. These are the ones I care about. Jesus says, no, no, wait a minute. Who is a neighbor in this, in this story? And so in the kingdom of heaven, the focus becomes on who is neighborly, not on not who is the one needing help, but the focus becomes on what am I doing? Who am I becoming? And in a sense, that becomes... Um, should become our focus today. We make that choice really every day. Who is my neighbor today? Isn't it the one who has need? It's the one who has need. There's a lot we could go. I need to, I need to close. Think about these things. Kingdom of heaven. Jesus brings a new way. And as we, I'd like to spend more time in this, in the Beatitudes and some of the Sermon on the Mount. But I think it was important for us to get an understanding on how do we see the work of God in the world? And the kingdom of heaven is only seen with eternal eyes. It's only seen by those who are in Christ, but they begin to understand that there is a different, and this is, this is a present reality. 
So many people miss the kingdom because they see it as some future, it's some future hope, and they don't see it having any bearing on their present day life. How do we see it this morning? Do we have eyes to see? Shall we pray? Father, would you continue to open our eyes to the realities of the kingdom of heaven? And Lord, I pray that whatever that calling means for each of us as individuals, maybe it's starting with the interior rooms of our own castle and allowing you to start the work there and take more territory there so that, Lord, we can help spread your name in the earth and to be part of your purposes and your plan. Father, show us. Show us where we limit you. And yet, Lord, give us courage when our faith is weak because, Lord, you, you accepted weak faith when it came from those who were sincere and you chose to meet people where they were at. Lord, just give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and, Lord, give, give us a willingness to yield ourselves completely to you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In Christ's name we pray.